Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. And in today's episode, we are talking about the painted wolf, aka African wild dog, aka painted hunting dog. And we'll be discussing <laughs> we'll be discussing this topic with today's guest, Angelo. So Angelo, thank you for coming on the show and welcome to Thanks, the Conservation Tribe. Thank you so much for having me, Blaine. That's amazing to be here with you. I'm very excited to do that. I'm excited too, bro. Uh, how are you going? Yeah, very good, very good, very good. Yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get stuck in. So how about you tell the world a bit about who you are and what you do? About who I am. So my name is uh, Angelo, I'm 25 years old. I am studying zoology in Glasgow, Scotland, which is why we have the, dif- the difference of time right now. <laughs> yeah, a bit, of, uh, bit of a difference. So just uh, <laughs> a bit of difference. 11 o'clock where you are, 11 p.m.? 11.20 so, p.m.? It's 11 p.m. For you, it's yeah. the ATM. So that's, that's eight, great. That's, eight, that's eight, what's amazing with technology today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am French, though, but I moved to Scotland because I felt like for to achieve what I want to do with my passion, my passion in wildlife conservation, I need to, to speak English so we can have this kind of concession. I could work anywhere in the world. So I moved to Glasgow and I am passionate about wildlife conservation with an emphasis for uh, African wildlife. And so... I have recently co-founded uh, Toucan Conservation, which is uh, a new conservation initiative that produces wildlife videos in an effort to bridge the gap between the science-based conservation and the general public, which is why our, our Skype right now is actually perfect, because I feel like we are on the same page with what we want to achieve. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. No worries. Um, so Toucan Conservation. So. That's the project that you recently started up? Yes, yes. So what inspired you to kind of kick that off? So originally, uh, with my uh, friend, which is the other co-founder, Will Donald, we created uh, another website when we were writing articles. And uh, the problem with that, the problem is that, it's not a problem, but there are already so many great websites that already had, you have already like all the scientific articles and you have also like, or the website that just writes amazing articles already. So our articles would not have uh, get an audience. And so we thought, how could we make something that we could uh, make an impact, make a, a contribution, our own contribution? Mm-hmm. And we are both passionate about uh, videos. And so we thought, instead of writing articles, let's go on the field. Let's go to do conservation just the way we, like, we have experience with that. But to film the behind the scene instead of showing like the wildlife documentaries today they are magnificent wonderful but they just focus on entertainment rather than education and we have the we had the opportunity and the chance to be surrounded by amazing conservationists in africa will is focusing on zimbabwe in zimbabwe i'm more focusing in south africa we had the ch- we had the chance to to know so many so many conservationists and we want to to highlight the the work we want to highlight the critical work of uh, underground wildlife conservation that are working too often in the shadow to conserve species and to conserve like wildlife in a holistic manner. Mm-hmm. So these documentaries, so if you've got to focus on kind of this video format, are they going to be more short form videos? They're going to be very short. Yes, they are going to be very short and we want to focus on one species at a time to captivate an audience. So instead of going a bit everywhere like we're doing with our with our articles, uh, we want to focus on one species at a time, which is why we are going to focus on the painting dog now because I'm going to South Africa tomorrow to conduct my research and Will is going to Zimbabwe to conduct his master. 
mm-hmm. both on the painting dog and with different wildlife organizations. So we had the opportunity to be to go on the field and uh, to be surrounded with researchers who work there on the on the on the long term. So we'll mm-hmm. have the opportunity to see to record the behind the scenes of how do you conserve an endangered species? How like how do you collect data? How what do you do with that? And and yeah, basically, what is the work behind the scene that that is too too rarely shown to people, to the people that want to see that because people are getting more interested, people are raising awareness and they want to know about that. And it's it's often too difficult for the public to find the information that they're trying to find because scientific articles are kind of like niche to the scientist. And the scientists, even though they are doing an amazing job, they can struggle sometimes to 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 give accessible content to the public, and the public wants to know about that. And mm-hmm. they are quite. You just go on Facebook and you just get uh, very, I don't know, say like sad and like overwhelmed by all the bad news we see on Facebook all the time about like wildlife and all that. But there are, there are people, there are a lot of wildlife organizations that work that dedicate the whole life to wildlife conservation, mm. towards wildlife conservation. And this is what we want to show, because we are very fortunate at Tugan Conservation to be surrounded by these people that we want to, um, to film that. So, yeah, short videos. It's just going to be one theme per video, no more than five videos per species. So five for myself, five for Will. Each video is going to discuss one specific theme. We're going to mm-hmm. try to interview conservationists. Five minutes per theme, like one theme to just try to... Uh, to just get to the point and to know because we're not doing we're not gonna try to make wildlife documentaries the way like the beautiful way that National Geographic can do. We just want to talk about a real conservation theme, the spread, mm-hmm. the solution, the solution, and how do we do to. Uh, I think that's a really good idea. Um, I think there is a disconnect between um, you know the research that happens and the general public, and the general and public. And the general public would be so inspired if they hear more of these stories. Like, like, mostly with media, we can Skype at like 11 p.m. It's 8 p.m. for you. We can, we, we, we have so much power with the social media that we need it to use it in a powerful way to, uh, to communicate to each other and to mm. share our knowledge, you know, with our modest, with our modest knowledge, you know. Yeah, but small bits of info exactly. combined together is, you, you know, powerful you know, And we all do the best of ourselves. To, to try to, to wear awareness and the people are responding to that. We can see on social media, you can see from like all your pages and pe- people want to know more people like climate change, wildlife conservation, everything. This is topics that are quite hot on the moment. And, and we need to, instead of, of keep scaring the people, we need to show them that there are people that are working on the field. There are people that are trying to do stuff and we want to inspire, to inspire them. Wherever you live, whatever you do, just to do the maximum of yourself. And even though you feel like you are just one small individual, your choice can make big difference because your choices can also show the example. Just by yourself, your, choice, your choices are not gonna, are not gonna maybe not have a real impact. But the number of people you can inspire, this mm. is priceless. This can just be like an endless circle of inspiring people, which is why we want to try to show. Mm. It's all about momentum. Like one person, one individual action in isolation isn't a lot, but one can lead to two, two can lead to three. And uh, you see those memes popping around at the moment about, you know, I can't make a difference, says yeah. 8 billion people. Yeah. And that's kind of the crux of the problem is uh, people are approaching this from, I can't do something, but your act 
isn't isolated it affects multiple people. It's a, it's a ripple on effect. So, and if you can get that ripple on effect to be positive and use harness the power of social media, the internet to make that viral, which is kind of my take. I'm trying to uh, make uh, conservation or these environmental issues go viral as opposed to, you know, cat videos and, and the rest of it that you often see. Well. It's, it's amazing, you know, like all the wildlife documentaries, they just inspire people to a certain extent, but uh, they always focus on hunting, you know, prey predator. They, 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 they do not show the, the complexity and intricacy of the interconnection within the natural world and how this affects each species and how everything is interconnected and how, you know, they try to show which is amazing. Like I love watching wildlife documentaries. You know, I'm like the first one to just watch all the time. But they forget to talk about the part that they think would bore the people. They want to show sens sensationalism. You know, just. But that brings that, that brings we, up interesting. We want to see hunt. You know? We want to see hunt. We want. We don't want to. But yeah. the public, they want to know more than that. You know, and that's something that uh, is too often, um, too rarely, uh, shown by the wildlife documentaries. Hmm. So you think Even though Pardon? You, you think that practical side needs to be shown more? That's right, but like I mean, each one need to do the job. Like by the way, how they inspired people when you watch that, like Blue Planet with the plastic. The, the impact. The scientists for more than twenty years are try to wear awareness. They say this is urgent, and nobody was listening. And you have Blue Planet that came, and everyone has suddenly changed the mind, or at least be aware of it. Mm -hmm. So to a certain extent, the wildlife documentaries are doing amazing job. You know. Each one needs to do the part, and they can focus on everything. Obviously, you know. They, mm. But uh, but yeah, you know. So that brings up an interesting question in my mind: if the ultimate objective is to um, is to maximize conservational action, what is that optimal balance between entertainment and education? Because if it's hundred percent educational, no one's gonna. Yeah, exactly. It, right? So what? What is? We're gonna try to balance? make it. Yeah, it's the perfect balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's difficult to do. But that's what mm -hmm. we're gonna try to achieve. But like, it might yeah. take a while. You just need yeah. a trial. You just need to experiment it and and do. And you won't get that. And the optimal balance probably changes with times as as everyone's values and things change. You know, it's you need to adapt to the market. Especially with nowadays when you have so many videos, you just like script your social media and you have video after videos. You the, the uh, lifespan, um, how do say lifespan, uh, attention for oh, videos very is very small. short. You know, you just go from one to another thing. You just overwhelm with information, with data all the time, with just a article and all that, and you just skip and skip and skip. And sometimes you just uh, don't focus on anything instead of focusing on one specific thing. Hmm. So I think that's our job as well is to present that information in a way that is digestible in the current time. Just like if, if and it's fun because, because like sometimes people think that learning is boring and, and actually learning is like fascinating. Like yeah. it is when you understand, when you appreciate the, the, the natural world, for example, for, for my passion, which is like wildlife conservation, the more you understand, the more you want to know and the more you want to care because you, you obviously gonna care more for something that you love and understand that from something that you do not understand and which is why like wildlife research and like conservation today is very important because we are still learning mm -hmm. like, for me from my point of view as a student I'm, i still have so much to learn but even the scientists 
we are still conducting research because we have so much to learn in a landscape that is constantly changing. Most in Africa, with all the civilization are growing, the population is increasing, the habitat loss is just increasing as well, so you mm. have less space for the animals. So therefore, you need to understand how this is going to alter the animals. You know, so mm. there's still so much to learn, and it's just fascinating to understand that. And it's, it's ongoing. It's not like binary. It's not like mathematics where one plus one equals two, and that's the answer for infinity. Yes, you know, and less. Yeah. An answer to painted dog conservation ten years ago is different now, and will be different in ten years' time. So it's like an ever-going quest to uh, to learn and then apply that knowledge to for the betterment of every living species, I guess, on this planet. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so let's dive into a bit of science stuff. Started, yeah. So the eco- ecological situation of the painted wolf. Can you kind of um, shed some light on that current situation? Um, so the painted wolf or the painted dog, like I would call it, even though, uh, are remarkable. The social structure of the painted dog is remarkable. So firstly, they are monogamous. And this is something that we might take for granted in the human, you know, like species, but only 5% of the, of the mammals are actually monogamous. So the birds, you can see in the How birds, many percent, sorry, for again? 5%. So in the birds, uh, the class of birds, 90% are monogamous, but in the mammals, uh, in the mammals group of uh, animals, only 5% are monogamous. And on top of that, the pentic dog, they are monogamous and only the alpha pair will produce offsprings. So they have quite a unique systems when only the alpha pair will have offsprings and all the, 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 the males and the female coming from the litter, some will stay, some will disperse after three years old to, uh, to, to avoid the inbreeding, to increase the genetic flow and diversity. So um, you will have the alpha pair, which is going to be the only uh, pair that will produce offspring. And all the other ones are going to be helper, helpers. And so they have also a unique way of being cooperative breeders. Only the alpha pair will have produce offsprings, but all the males and the females, which are the helper from the pack, Either from immigration, either from the own uh, uh, from the all own offsprings, are gonna try to raise the pups all together. Mm-hmm. And uh, by by doing this, by having this strong and powerful social structure, they can increase the survival. And so all the painting dogs are gonna try to uh, to to raise the pups. And because they have such a strong uh, social structure, they can let one or two babysitters where they are going to hunt. And so when the pups are born, they're going to stay in the den for three months. For three months, the pups are not going to move at all. Every time they're going to go hunting, they're always going to let one or two um, babysitters that will stay and take care of the pups. And the, and the painting dog will go hunting and they will eat as much food as they can. And they will go back to the den, to the den and they will regurgitate the food. And so this is quite, uh, this is not unique, but this is quite remarkable to do this uh, to have this powerful social structure. Uh, when they go hunting, they also have strategy. And so they are a wide, forage, a wide ranging forager. And so unlike the lions, unlike the felids, which are sit and wait hunter strategy. This is that we, uh, yes, the, the niche was already taken by them. Uh, the scavenging scavenger was already taken by the hyena. So when the, the dogs have evolved, because they evolved later than the felid and the hyena, they had to develop another way. They have to develop to, 
to fill another niche, and they had to fill this kind of niche, which is white for white ranging forager. And so they will go and they would um, they will go to large areas to find the food. They can run for like up to like 42 kilometers to find uh, to find prey before to go back to the den. Uh, after three months old, the pups will go with the pack, and they will go always on the they will always be on the move. And so they have very large home range because they are trying to avoid the lions and all the other predators because they are the smallest of the top predator. So the pentic dog, they are top predator, but compare the size towards the lions, which are dominating all the land, they are much smaller and therefore they need much uh, wider range of home range mm -hmm. to avoid all of them. And so, uh, and so this is for... They, yes, they have a very high uh, metabolic, which means that uh, metabolism. So they require more food than any other predator compared to the size. Really? So they require like they can have up to like ten or twelve kilo uh, per in in one in one go. Yeah. And uh, the last thing with the panting dogs that they are extremely social. And so, for example, when you have um, a panting dog that will be injured or will be caught by a snare. So mm -hmm. in, in Africa, you have a problem with a bush meat eater, a hunter that will put, set snares within protected areas or outside to, to uh, catch the antelope, to catch prey to, for their own food. Uh, Sometimes a panting dog will be caught by that. And the problem with that is that the panting dog, the pack is the whole life, the social structure is so powerful that they will not leave the, the panting dog, they will stay with them, with him. But the problem is when the it, it's insane. And the problem is when the the panting dog is being caught, the bush meter the bush meter hunter do not only set one snares, they will set many snares within these same small areas. And the problem with that is that sometimes the whole pack is gonna get caught by the snares because they don't want to leave this uh, individual. Oh, so the individual I just show how how the social structure is powerful. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy how their compassion and, and their tightness as a as a family, as a family can re yes. result in more deaths in the form of it, snares it, it, because and, and, they just linger around there because they don't want to leave and then drop the attack. Without developing this social structure, they would have never be what they are today. Because, as I said, the felid niche was already taken so you had all the predator sit and wait you know it was already already and then you had the hyena the hyena and the hyena like like creature in the like in the in the past that became scavenger mm -hmm. and so benthic dog has to develop a new technique and and by being um, by being hunter in this manner they also uh, eat the food as fast as possible so they developed a way of eating the food as fast as possible. And so when they go catch a prey, in less than 10 minutes, the kudu or the buffalo or whatever is, is absolutely like, uh, they, they eat all of it in 10 minutes. They eat so fast. And this, is, and this is done in a way of avoiding the competition to steal the food. Mm -hmm. And by doing this, and by doing this, by, by, by eating the food as soon as possible so the hyena and the lions cannot go and, and be fed by the, by the catch, they have, developed, they have the opportunity to have so much free time. They have the opportunity to have so much free time. And this free time 
just like human beings, is essential for social structure. Mm-hmm. And by and by mm-hmm. filling the niche of being a hunter in this manner, they have developed they they they, they just eat the food as food as possible. Therefore, they they had free time, and with this free time, they had time to play together. Ah, and that fosters <laughs> that, that caring social structure. And this is how the pack structure is absolutely essential for them today, because just like human, you know, we have when we start to to improve our 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 comfort. As a species, we had free time. With free time, you can develop sociality, you can develop a brain, you can think of, you know, and this is what other species have never managed to develop yet. And that is what the painting dog has developed, which is quite remarkable, quite remarkable. Even if lions or, you know, there are other species that live in group, the social structure is is not as developed as the painting dog is. So the lion, so the painted wolves, do they have more downtime than, say, a lion? Downtime? What do you mean? I like downtime as in free time. Yeah, they have more free time. They have more free time. The, maybe the lions have as much as free time, but they have never had the they never had the the, necessi- the necessity to be um, to be as social. The way how they are social, they are still a bit social. The the lions enough to survive as a species, while the wild dogs has to develop more and more sociality. To develop structure, to develop social bond, which would it's then integral to uh, their survival. Then essentially, so they can protect the alpha pair, which then can produce offsprings, and then all the cooperative, you know, like cooperative breeder is quite remarkable as well. That the whole pack will care for the pups, they will yeah. treat them as one pups, exactly. and they all come from the offspring, the offspring of the alpha pair. Mm-hmm. And so, because only the alpha pair can pro- produce offsprings, this also brings to an issue that can be done is, for example, there are only 6,600 individuals left in, in, uh, in Africa. So compared to 6, 100 years ago, 6,600. So they are, they are endangered, obviously. They have been highly persecuted in the past. And the consequence of that is, even though there is 6,600 individuals, only the, offspring, uh, only the alpha pair can produce offspring. Mm-hmm. So you can divide it by like 10 or 15 for who can produce offsprings, actually. So that means that, for example, if you have a, a, popula- uh, a population in a, a national park of 20 packs, you only have 20 of 20 packs, which could be like 200, 300 uh, individuals. You have only 20 pairs that can produce offspring. So it's a very fragile system. It's a very yeah, fragile system. If this alpha pair dies, then the whole pack will be uh, disintegrated and they will all go to, towards uh, trying to find new packs. They wouldn't kind of create a new alpha pair within that pack? They would create a new alpha pair, but before that, prior to that, the pack would, uh, would separate and some would stay with the alpha female of the alpha pair or whatever. It's, it's if only one of the alpha pair will die, the alpha female will stay and half of the pack or some, some individual of the pack will stay, some would leave to try to find a new pack and they will try to form a new, uh, a new alpha pair system. But so the die, the death of, of an alpha pair can have dramatic significant consequences to, toward the whole pack to itself. Well, that's a very and interesting point, isn't it? Yeah, this idea of, you know, if you've got 20 packs, there's got 20, pack, 20, only oh, 20, 20 40 key members. When you have 6,600 individuals left in Africa, Mm-hmm. You you are aware that this species is is need more conservation initiative that another species 
who maybe have the same numbers of individuals, but could be still a viable population because they will have a, like a structure that will that will not require as as details in terms of social structure than the painting mm -hmm. does. So there are 6,600 individuals left. What's their current range? Where do they, where do they live? So you have um, a significant amount in South Africa left, and uh, one-fourth of the Pentic dog are within the region of Kaza, which is the Kavengo zambezi transfrontier uh, area, which, mm -hmm. which, is, which is an agreement between five countries of opening the landscape for like interconnected landscape, and this includes uh, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Angola, Namibia, and Botswana. And so these five countries have um, have um, started a project which is called the Casa, which is just opening all the national park, opening all the all the border to increase the migratory uh, fluctuation. And within this Casa uh, Casa um, area. You have many national parks, you have many game reserves, and you have many um, wildlife organizations working there, and this cover one-fourth of the whole painting dog uh, population within, uh, within Africa. In the west of Africa, they have been totally uh, persecuted until the extinction, so you will have maybe one or two national parks that will cover only a few dozen uh, of painting dogs, there are not that many left. In South Africa, you have one viable population, so a viable population uh, defined by um, a significant amount of individual within a, a given area that can sustain and can survive on the long term because they can create different parks and they can disperse and they can compete. Mm -hmm. So in Kruger National Park, there is one viable population and then you have the meta population that I think we'll come back to that later, which are many antique dogs that has been translocated within different discrete reserves in South Africa. And then you still have a bit in the east of Africa. So that's what's going The translocation, can you elaborate on... Arranging now. Can you elaborate on that translocation? So I... Yes, and they used to be, they used to have a wide, wide range in, uh, within Africa. There was not only savanna biomes, but also in swamp uh, forest in Equatorial Guinea. They were in the west of Africa. They were from the sub-Saharan Africa to, to the South Africa. A wide range of uh, population, like a, like any other predators as well in in Africa, uh, to lost all of the home range due to to human activities. Mm -hmm. So that's the the necessi necessity around the translocation. Uh, can, I you, can, can you def what what is translocation? What does that mean? So so um, in South Africa, so. To finish with the social structure of the of the panting dog, because they are so social, and for example, they will regurgitate the food. They would, um, you know, they would lick each other because they have free time. They are very social, mm -hmm. and because of this sociality, they can exchange more pathogen than other species. Other species, and because they exchange a lot of other pathog pathogen, they can they are more likely to be infected, contaminated by lethal disease than other species. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the Serengeti National Park, for example, during the 70s to the 90s, there has been um, a decline in the, in the painting dog population uh, without any, uh, any reasons. And the reason for that was diseases. And they don't, we don't know, we don't have the, the paper that say if it was rabies 
or domestical dogs or whatever, but they all died from, from diseases because they are more likely to be affected by other species. And due to this uh, decline in the Serengeti popula uh, population in, in the early 90s, there has been, um, there has been uh, an alarm for the scientists that say within a few months, within a few years, you can lose a whole meta you can lose a whole population of panting dogs within an intact protected areas. So we need to do something. And the, the plan was to, uh, to create a new viable population within South Africa. The problem in South Africa is, an, apart from the Kruger National Park, which is enormous, it's 20,000 kilometers square. So it's a very, very large area uh, where there is a viable population. A viable population of Pentic dog would require something like 10,000 kilometers square. And there is no such places in South Africa that can contain that large areas. However, due to, uh, to European settlers in the, in, the, in the early uh, uh, 20th century that have developed farms that came and uh, yeah, have developed farms, in the 90s, they have changed the, the politics or whatever, and they have, there's been like a boom in the land conversion towards ecotourism game reserves. And because of all this ecotourism game reserve, there's been an increase in, in, in small reserves. They are still significantly large, but they are considered as small reserves. And within South Africa, you have more than like 500 protected areas, which are delimited by fences to delimit, uh, to, to have a, a delimitation between the human activities and the wildlife activities. And this also protects the wildlife and also protects the human, you know, it just, uh, you have all these uh, reserves, and the, the plan in the early 90s was to develop, through the WAG advisory group, to develop a new population of wild dogs, of painting dogs, within South Africa. And to do this, they, because of the lack of space, they chose to translocate painting dogs within different reserves. And so they translocate one pack in each reserve. The problem with that is that uh, Pentic dog, when they have, when they are three years old, they will disperse and they will try to find another pack. And when you isolate one one pack within a within a reserve within within a reserve, you obviously cannot be sustainable because it's only one pack, so it's so fragile, and you will have interbreeding. Therefore, to 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 incorporate a, a, a viable population, they have placed all this pack in different reserves that are being translocated from time to time to artificially simulate dispersal. And so you have this reserve, and there are like more than 18 reserves now when they have at least one pack of painting dogs. But they will all be uh, managed as if it was one population within the same areas. Not within the same areas, but within one given area. And therefore, when the painting dog is going to be three years old in some areas, they're going to translocate to another reserve stimulating simulating the dispersal, which will increase the diversity, which will prevent inbreeding, which will there make a sustainable population. And this okay. is what um, this, this is where I will go uh, to South Africa tomorrow to conduct my research. I will just focus on one reserve and, and how they are. Okay. So the reason why they can't naturally do that at the moment is because these reserves are fragmented and there's no way they're, of them uh, going from one to the other. Yeah, they can be either private reserves, 
or provincial reserves. So provincial reserves are uh, governmental owned and you have the private reserve, which were uh, there in the past uh, livestock farms that has been converted into uh, ecotourism reserves in the middle, uh, middle, um, uh, in the mid 90s. Yeah. So these lands are owned by private. It could be you, it could be me, you know. But they and 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 they some are participating to the metapopulation, meta population, and uh, by increasing the number of reserves, you you have some pros, you have some cons. The pros is that it's better than livestock farms, so you still bring some wildlife back, you know. You're trying to have healthy ecosystems, mm -hmm. and, and it brings ecotourism. The ecotourism generates incomes and. It is sad that today in our world, if you own wildlife, you need to pay for it. The cost, the cost to preserve wildlife is so expensive that you need to have income and mm -hmm. you don't really generate any money from wildlife conservation. So you need to find a way to get some source of income. And ecotourism is the perfect balance when it's well made to when generate right, yeah. exactly to, to have some incomes of money to then preserve the, the population, the wildlife population mm -hmm. on the long term. So you need to get the good balance. It's difficult to have to have the perfect balance between the wildlife conservation and generating incomes from ecotourism. Mm. But I think just because it's difficult to have that balance doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt. Like I, it's better to, in my opinion, <laughs> in my opinion, it's in the long run, it's better to overshoot the mark and get that balance wrong and then readjust to, to fine-tune it and get it right than to not do it at all because we need to do something right exactly. now. And, and as it, to me, it seems like the most practical way to go about it because you know, South Africa as sad as it is, money and conservation, like it's not very romantic, this idea of conservation, doing conservation projects that generates money, but like you just... This it is. We need to be practical. practical at some point, you know. It is like we need to, we need to be practical and... and and when it is well made, it is it is a great, it is a, a powerful tool. You know, it is a powerful tool for conservation. Hmm. It's a symbiotic relationship when when done right. Like, I, know. I, know. I mean, they probably would argue the animals, but <laughs> um, yeah. So the these game reserves that you, you said how a lot of them are conversions from previously used farm farms. Right, they were farms, and now they've been converted into private game reserves. Um, is there a number of farms, is there still a lot of land in South Africa and other countries in Africa that are still farming that could potentially be converted? Like have, uh, only a small uh, percentage? You, probably, but I think there are, there are more than enough ecotourism reserve in South Africa. So I couldn't tell you if there are still livestock farms that could be converted, but I think they have done the job in the 90s and there are plenty of reserves in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Do a lot of them so I don't know for the each other? Do a lot of them sit next to each other? So that's, that's one of the things that can sometimes seem um, a bit frustrating because most of the reserves sometimes are just fenced between each other. And so you would think practically just open the fences, which will you know increase the migratory right. flow. Yeah. But this land they are owned by you know by people and and when you when you open the fence, you know, you you have to take the risk with you to lose all your species. Imagine if you open the, f the fences with another with another reserve, and all ah, these yeah. rhinos, all lions, all you you know, all your precious wildlife that you know generating sperms are going to to the other reserve because the vegetation is better because there are more prey, and then you have you 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 reserve with that without wildlife left. 
So it's kind of like keep getting the, the good balance. And then obviously these lands are owned by people. So, you know, before to open the fences, you know, you need to think twice, you know. So, but there are places that are being doing that more and more actually. Opening the fences. Opening the fences to some to those guys. But again, that comes back to that balance. Like opening those fences could mean that you let out all these animals. Therefore, less people will come to your private game reserve because there's less animals to see. But if there's some way to incentivize um, opening these fences, whether it's, I don't know, I, I don't know what that looks like, but if there's some way to make it work. That's one of the things. We think that wildlife conservation is all about just studying animals and just... Uh, Wildlife conservation is just so much more than periphery, extra thing than just conservation by itself. You have to deal with politic regulation, you have to deal with the tourist, you have to deal with the with the landowner, you have to deal with the habitat loss. If you just give areas to the wildlife, they wouldn't need any conservation because they could do the job by themselves just the way they did for four billion years, you know. The problem with wildlife conservation that people don't really appreciate is that you need to deal with so many other things more complex than just the animals by themselves, you know. Preserving the animals by themselves is quite, not easy, but it's quite uh, straightforward. What you need to do is to deal with all the periphery around the wildlife conservation and all, yes. the, the, all the humans, all the humans' activity, all the, all the consequences that we are, which is still brand new, even though, you know, we feel it's been like that for a long time. Like, everything is, like, recent, and so it's still new for people. We still try to understand how we can find solution for this problem. And, and hence why, you know, we're doing this podcast and, and doing what we're trying to do. It's just a creative conversation, right? More people that talk about it, more people that hopefully will convert into doing something and hopefully shit can happen, right? Okay, so, um, so that's the private game reserves and why they're kind of why they're important in their, in their role. Um, would you say this that... This is a, a successful uh, program. I must say that the meta population in South Africa is quite an example for the future. And for example, they are thinking in India to do the same with the tigers. Because, you know, the tigers are declining, are declining. And they, there are no more space for them to have a viable population within a given area. However, if you put one tiger somewhere, one tiger somewhere, and one tiger somewhere, but you are managing it as if they were in the same places and you translocate them to, to increase the genetic diversity, then you can sustain them on the long term. So it's not a short-term solution. It's not a long-term solution. To what the, it can save a species uh, life, like a species uh, to, like against extinction if you do in this manner. And so the painting dog meta population within South Africa has been a success and the people who work there and doing that are doing an amazing job. They are really doing an amazing job. That's good. Mm. They started in the 1970, uh, yeah, 97, 97, with two reserves, with I think something like 20 painting dogs. And today there are more than 250 painting dogs within more than almost 20 reserves. And there's like, yeah, I think more, more than 20 packs there. And they're all being managed as one population, like if it was in Kroger or anywhere. Plus the viable population within the within the Kruger National Park. So this this strategy um, of translocation and developing these meta populations. When did you say that started? 
It started in 97, in, in 97, yes. 97. Okay, so it's been over 20 years ago. It was 20 years ago, the time that, you know, all the scientists just, because it's, we require a lot of, of uh, I'll say, uh, administration, a lot of preparation, you know, prior to start to do this project, you know, and, and you need reserve and you need land manager, you know, land owner. You have so many conservationists, so many politics, so many like things that need to be uh, taken in consideration prior to do that. Um, so 97, in terms of kind of tangible figures, um, what was the population like uh, back then in 97 and compared to now, like how, how has... I think it was, um, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it was quite similar. Maybe the Pentagon population over the 20 years has increased a bit, but what is the most important is that the mentality changed. And so the Pentagon in the early uh, 20th century was highly persecuted by all the Europeans that came in South, South Africa and Africa. And so uh, in, in the early 20th century, when the Europeans came to Africa, they brought with them the hatred of, uh, of wolf and wolf-like creature. And this is something that is very interesting to, uh, to appreciate, is that everywhere the Europeans settle in, within the world, in every continent, they have always persecuted and slaughtered wolf and wolf-like creatures. Really? If you go America, Africa, and North Australia, like the, the, if you go to South America, if you go to Europe, they have always, and this is due to, uh, there's been like a hatred for, for the wolf and wolf-like creature. There's been a uh, uh, problem with the livestock farm with the wolf. And so by eradicating all the painted dog and eradicating all the wolf, you, you, could, uh, you could save like your you precious livestock and farmland. And um, when the European came, they had brought with them the hatred of, 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 uh, of wolf. And wherever a native population has been in every continent, they have never persecuted and slaughtered the, the wolf and wolf-like creature. The European did. They came to, uh, to Africa and they brought with them the hatred of a painting dog. And so prior to the 20th century, the painting dog had two different names. So in the early uh, 18th century, you had one scientist that discovered the species and gave it the name tricolor dog. So lichen tricolor. But the you problem with that, it, it's cool, I like <laughs> it. And, but the problem is like a few years before that, you had another scientist that already gave a name to the same species. And you know, back 200 years ago, we didn't have the same technology that we have today to communicate to each other. So this second scientist found the name, however, tricolor dog. However, there was all, already another names before that. And this other name was the African hunting dog. And when the European came in the early 20th century, they brought with them the, with them the hatred of dog and they had a plan, an eradication plan. They wanted to extinct the species. And when they brought with them all the farmers, from Europe, they said, we will give you some land so you can, uh, you can have your farmland, you can do livestock farm. And all the, the Europeans said, but we can farm here. There are these wildlife, there are, there are, there are painting dogs, there are lions, there are... and the government said, don't worry, we will pay you. We will give you some land and we will pay you to kill them. And so there's a plan in, in the early 20th century to totally eradicate the, the wild dog, because this is how they give them the name. 
they, they deliberately changed the name to African wild dog, African oh. African hunting dog, sorry, to uh, African wild dog. And they give this name deliberately to give a very negative connotation to this species by changing the name to wild dog, which today kind of sound, I, I like, you know, I personally like the name wild dog, you know, it sounds cool. But back in the day, that was a way to bring confusion and to and to emphasize the fact that we need to eradicate the species by giving them a bad connotation name. You know, that's just wild dogs. You know, they're just like feral dogs in a, in a way. They shouldn't be here. And uh, the government was paying the farmer to literally kill them, and they were even paying them. And I think it's something towards 1.4 million uh, pounds has been spent in the early uh, 20th century which today would equivalent to something like 10, 10 billion pounds. So they, they, they spend an enormous amount of money to the eradication of the painting dog. And, uh, and so they change the name, they give it the wild dog name. And then in the, in the 70s, there was no more people that was killing the painting dog because they couldn't find any. They've done the job basically. There was still a few that was going somewhere, but like they have eradicated the whole population almost within the entire Africa. And in the 70s, you had this uh, taxonomist. It's something we never heard, we never heard, we never hear, right? Uh, in the in the 70s, you have the taxonomist that was working the in one of the national uh, museums in Zimbabwe mm -hmm. that questioned themselves and they questioned the name wild dog. They say, why is the name wild dog? Because the scientific name was Lycan pictus. And Lycan pictus translates from the painted wolf-like creature. And there are protocols for naming, to naming. You don't just give a name to a species like that. You have to, there's a sort of protocol, which is the first part must refer to the genus, and the second part will, will, will refer to a characteristic of the species. And so the scientific name, Lycan pictus, refers to the painted wolf-like creature. So it's important to say that it's wolf-like, it's not wolf, because they are not wolf. They are from the same family of wolf. They are from the Canidae family. So they are from the dog family, but they are a different genus from the wolf. Mm -hmm. They are wolf-like, but they are not wolf. And they are from the dog's family. And therefore, the more appropriate name was the painting dog. And in the 70s, you have this taxonomist that done the job and say, from the scientific name, from what we know, from the naming protocol, the most accurate name for the species should be the painting dog and not the wild dog. And therefore, this, uh, this was adopted. And so the painting dog name was, uh, was on the table. And then the, in the, a few years later, you have uh, this author that wrote a book about the painting dog. And to sell more books, he changed the name to Painted Wolf because he he thought that it would sell more books if the name was Painted Wolf rather than Painted Dog. And so he changed the name to Painted Wolf. And uh, and because he sold so many books, it stuck to the head of people that changed the name to Painted Wolf. But this is a misnomer. This is a misnomer. They, they are the most accurate word. name is the Painted, painted Dog. And you had the Painted Wolf, and then you had the BBC that have changed the name as well. And I can't even remember, like, to, in the documentaries. And, and this, is, this is a misnomer. And, and the consequence of that is that there's confusion in the people's head because you have so many names 
and we don't understand why. You know, you have African wild dog, you have fentic dog, you have fented wolf, you have chep hunting dogs, you know, you have so many names for just one species, and this leads to confusion. Very but, interesting. But so, it's very interesting. And so the wild dogs, for example, uh, in South Africa, that's the way they are still calling today. And so, like, I know that today people calling wild, wild dogs wild dogs. They don't see the bad connotation the way we was this thing before. So, I like from my modest point of view, I have no problem with anyone saying painted wolf or painted dog or wild dog or anything. It just leads to confusion, and it's inter interesting to to appreciate that the the wild dog's name was a deliberate move from the European to give a very bad connotation to emphasize the farmers in the in the choice of killing of killing them. So the wild dog started off as a wild dog based on Europeans coming and just not liking the animal. So they, they assigned this name to it. And then in the 1960s, 70s, there was a rebrand. A national uh, museum in Zimbabwe that questioned this name and said, well, why is it wild dog? If the scientific name is Lycan Pictus, which literally translates to painted wolf-like creature, why would we give the name wild dogs? So there's a name change because the, the common name would better suit the um, scientific name, but also it's kind of like a conscious rebrand to kind of remove the bad connotations. That's a bad connotation, and this has been seen, for example, in Zimbabwe when you have the the Pentic Research Trust, the Pentic Dog Research Trust, or the Pentic Dog Conservation that had this name, and and this also changed the mentality because this has led to some confusion for the local communities, which like well. Are the wild dogs and painted dog the same species or are they different? And you just like, well, to a certain extent, they are not the same, even though it's the same species because the wild dog is just this bad connotation. And when you go back to the painted dog's name, people see that, see them more as a species instead of, a, of the bad connotation of the wild dog, kind of like feral dog that people could see. Like, you know, like in Europe, you have like rats, you know, that exactly the same way that were, because they were persecuted even in protected areas. So even in national park, even in reserve, they were killed everywhere. They, they, it's not even outside the protected areas that they were persecuted. It's, it's everywhere. It was just a massacre everywhere. And so yeah. to go back to the... Yeah. Yeah, sorry, on you go. Yeah, it, is, yeah, it is something that we, we don't... I didn't know that before uh, Dr. Greg, Gregory Rasmussen gave us an interview for Tucan, at Tucan Conservation. The interview will be shortly available on our website, and he talked with us for like an hour, and everything he was saying, just, I've never considered that. I didn't know that, you know? It's so interesting to appreciate that and to be aware of that. And to go back to your question that you ask is, has the Pentic dog population changed between the 90s to, to now? One of the things that is for sure is that the mentality changed. And today, and that is where I can we can thank all the wildlife documentaries to a certain extent, is that now we know the species and now we appreciate it more for what they really are rather than just this bad connotation. And when you have people that appreciate and care for species just the way you do, you know, you have the pair, you know, when people, you know, everywhere in the world, we are more, we know about these species now more than we used to, mm -hmm. then conservation initiative can be, can be installed and can be in place because people want them to... Uh, to survive, you know, we, we have affection for the species because now we also understand more of the social structure. Mm -hmm. You know, just like I told you before, you know, it's 
it, it, it doesn't just stop to wild, wild dogs are just hunter, you know. It's Pentic dogs have an amazing social structure that should be appreciated by everyone because it's quite magic, it's quite remarkable the way how they have the structure and the way how they survive, you know. Not only have they been persecuted by the hyena and the lions, but also yes. by, the, by the humans, you know. And they are still here today, the still having the fact, having each other, you know, it's, it's fantastic the way how they are. And, and now, yeah, there are much more conservation initiatives. So you have the CASA, which enclosed five, uh, five countries, which mm -hmm. is great for, for the conservation because you have large, large ecosystems, large intact reserve, landscape interconnected. You have more mig migratory flow. And then to the opposite, you have the South Africa, which is small reserve, but, but, uh, but managed as a meta population. And so there are different ways of conserving the species. Mm -hmm. And so far, uh, there, there is hope for the species because, because there is a lot of good conservation initiatives that are being installed. However, the reality is that there is habitat loss everywhere in Africa, and this is affecting every species there. So we will never go back to the, to the, to the ratio that we used to have. You know, but there, are hope for the there is hope for the future for the species. But on the habitat loss, um, there's obviously a, an ongoing problem for all animals around our planet. But this private, the conversion from farm to um, private game reserve, that's a small space where there's a habitat gain potentially for these, these animals? Or is uh, insignificant in the grand scheme? Well, for, for South Africa, it's quite significant because not only you have the pentic dog population now, but you also have um, the lion's population, you have a cheetah. There's been a cheetah meta population just in the same manner that the pentic dog has been, um, has been managed. You have the same for the cheetah, which is kind of like the same as endangered as the pentic dog. I don't exactly the, the numbers. Cheetah. Yes, I think it's something like 6,000 individuals left as well. Uh, so you have you have these reserves in in South Africa and within the whole entire Africa it's not that much but in South Africa it's quite significant and South Africa is quite a developed country in Africa and you have a lot of of of, of serious good wildlife organizations that are working there on the field. Uh, so yeah, just South Africa like is is doing great for wildlife at the moment, mm -hmm. even though it's still in small reserves. So small reserves mean less migratory flow, you know, even for the antelope, even for the predator that live there, you know, okay, we translocate the pentic dog, but there are much more than just the pentic dog within a reserve, you know, you need like this, many this species, healthy habitat, and smaller reserves means less, they are less likely to, to increase the genetic diversity, which on the long term can have some impact, because when you reduce the genetic diversity for a species, this species became more likely to 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 get uh, diseases or to to not adapt themselves to a new environment because the more genes the more gene the genes pool you have the more the more likely you have to you are to adapt yourself within an environment yeah. so this is what the risks are going with the, with a poor genetic diversity however it's better than livestock which was nothing so there they it's still better than nothing it's it, it's great yeah okay so I want to talk about um yeah, but before I move on to the next topic, I want to talk about the painted wolf, painted dog, um, and lion relationships specifically, because I find that really interesting. But I want to quickly go back to some of um, 
your points about the slaughter of these animals at the beginning of the century, or last century. I want to, I don't know if you know the population, the rough population at the beginning of 1900s. Do, do you know that number off by of the top of your head? One of the problems is that back in the, at this time there was no there was no monitoring there was no conservation initiative yeah. so it's it is just roughly that the numbers are so we don't know exactly the num the number of individuals of individuals but it's something people people the scientists guess something like five hundred thousand five hundred thousand at the beginning of the across century South Africa across the entire Africa to 6,000 individuals that remain today. It's been like that. Down to 6,500 and, and 118 years. With a deliberate plan. That is sad. On top of the, there's so many threats for the painting dogs. So like I said, they are more likely to die from diseases. There's a habitat loss. There's been persecution. There's the snares because of the of the it's oh, insane. There's the snares for the game. I question us humans sometimes, sure. and by sometimes I mean a lot of the time. <laughs> uh, okay. well, they're still here. They're still powerful. They're still here. The the panting dogs, yeah. Yeah, and they can thank their social structure for that. I'm sure. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the painted dog and the lion relationship. Can you elaborate on that relationship? This, the lion has so, a massive effect on, uh, on what they do. So, so, they, are, so they are both uh, what we call apex predator, which is top predator. Mm -hmm. So within the predator guild, you have the lion, which is the biggest one, and you have the painting dog, which is the smallest one. Mm -hmm. And the felid, because lions are felid, obviously, uh, evolved much, much earlier than the painting dog. And so they already got the niche, like I say, to have the sit and wet structure, which is the most uh, energetic, energetic, um, like energetic, sufficient manner to to sustain, you know, rather than than the, the petting dog, which had to, to spend a lot of energy to to get the food every day. The lions they just optimize the energy. They just sit, wait, get the food, and so they had time to to increase in number. They had time to to be like a large, powerful population, the painting dog has been different. And because they are the smallest, they are, they are very dependent on the, on the lion's uh, movement, on the lion's territory. And so you always have a correlation between the movement of the lions and the, and the painting dog within, uh, within large areas or smaller areas, such as the reserve in, the, in South Africa. And so the lions, we always also persecute the painting dog, as if it was not, not enough that the humans were doing that. Uh, and the painting dogs, yeah, they are, well, they are quite different. Well, then it was a necessity that for us it wasn't. <laughs> so there's they, they, a dependence of, of, uh, of lion's movement with the painting dog. And it is very interesting when you, when you try to, to monitor them, which is one of the, one of the great things with uh, wildlife uh, reserves in South Africa is that you can put color satellite, and therefore you can collect more data on the localization every day of the painting dog and the lions. Therefore, you can understand more, you can understand better, to a greater extent, the correlation between the movement pattern between lions and wild and painting dog. And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a correlation between them, and you can see that wherever the lions will go, the painting dog will always try to avoid them, 
So there is a spatial avoidance, there is temporal avoidance in the smaller reserves, where they would always try to uh, to hunt or to be active at different time of the day than the lions. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they are trying to avoid them even on a temporal uh, scale. So you have avoidance, you have uh, persecution, and the lions, when they can when they can find a pack, they will uh, they will always try to kill the pups because they are aware that if you kill the pups, you kill the future generation. And so hunting dogs are going through a lot of threats. And one of these, which is a natural one, which is something that we need to appreciate, they will always kill the pups wherever they have the chance. And and the alpha pair. And so when they kill the alpha pair, that will lead to the destruction of the whole pack. So very dependent on the lions, and there's a real correlation between a, a, a real, even even the hyena, and they're the lions at all costs, right? Pardon? They, their territory, their range is very like much dictated on the range of the lions. That's, that's a good point. This is why the, so the lions will have a small, a small home range because they don't need a large home range. They just to defend. Yeah, when they, when they have, and they will go where there is the most prey as well. So it's interesting to, to uh, appreciate that the lions will go the lions will go towards areas within within an environment when there is the most uh, prey population, with the most prey density. And because the benthic dog are, are excluded from these areas with large numbers of prey population, they are confined within smaller within large areas when there is not as many prey. Uh, prey. And this is why they have to they have to. Uh, Run to go towards like large destination, last large distance to get the prey, you know? which is why they had to develop a wide for, uh, ranging forager, foraging hunting system, which is just to move large, large, large distance to get the prey because they have, they are excluded from high prey density areas. And so yeah, it's it's interesting, right? And they are also the vegetation type. Uh, they will they will be excluded from the vegetation type where there is a high prey density as well. So excluded by the lions where there is the most prey. Therefore, they have large home range, so they can avoid them temporarily and especially. And also, they will be uh, excluded to areas when there is low prey density. Always find it interesting the relationships. It is, yeah. In the, in the natural world. You have to take all the all the species. You have so many uh, elements you need to take into consideration. It's just not these two. But these two species have a strong, very cor- correlation between the movement pattern and uh, and uh, yeah, the pe- persecution is not the word, but just uh, just uh, interaction, interaction, interference between these two species. Mm-hmm. Do the painted wolves? If they were to go extinct, touch wood, what animals, are there any animals that specifically or heavily rely on on their existence? Like, is there, it's obviously very intricate elements, but is there anyone that, an animal that has a close relationship but, with them and kind of lean on them a lot? So, the painted dog, Lycan Pictus, the, the genius Lycan is the only one that is still. Uh, extinct today. So the painting dog is the only species from this genus that is still uh, alive today. Therefore, if you lose the painting dog, you will lose a whole genus. 
you lose the whole genius, and so there will there will be no no more uh, no more lichen ever after four billion years of, of evolution. You would just lose this genetic Not material. The species. Pardon? Yeah, there would no be, there would be no more uh, lichen, which is uh, which is just uh, just a genius, just the way there's the wolf or the or the or the foxes, for instance. You know, mm. so you have different species of foxes. You only have one species of painting dog mm. of lichen. So losing this will lose the entire entire genius, and losing the painting dog will also have dramatic consequences for for conservation because because they are predator and predator play an essential part in keeping healthy and uh, and healthy population balance between the prey and the predator. So losing the, the painting dog will have uh, Genetic uh, dramatic consequences, the loss of a genius, and the and it could have some dramatic consequences for the for the wildlife by itself, you know. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of pausing here for a bit. But I'm just thinking that just a sad situation, but it's it's, it's just one sad example. There's many animals in a similar position to, to wild dogs and there's always one common variable and that's us humans. Actually, I, I quite, I'm, I'm hopeful for the painting dog because today people are changed the mentality, you know, when you see all the persecution they went through and today there's a lot of conservation initiative and today people like us, you know, we are, we are talking about it, you know, so, so there is urgent to do uh, conservation for them. But it is being placed now, so so there are other species that are in the same position and don't have as many conservation initiatives that the painting dog is having today. So so I am very helpful for the future for them, compared to other species that go towards the same. Uh, even the six, six, I'm very opt- not very optimistic, but I'm optimistic because of the Kaza, because of South Africa mm. population, and because of the the mentality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Yes, yeah, 6,000 seems like a very low number, though. And it is a very low number. That's the reality. Yeah. But compared to other species, this is actually, in some, for some species, that is the reality of today in the, in the, in the, the entire world, that 6,000 is, is, is a very low number. And we are trying to... A low number, but a number that's high enough that if we kind of implement some, if we act now, there's... And then, and then you have alpha pair that only produce offsprings, which can be a problem, you know. It's like we depend on this alpha pair, and therefore 6,000 species means only 120, 130th can produce offsprings. One second, I'm going to pause this. I'm going to cut this bit out of the podcast. I need to quickly plug in my iPhone. One second. No worries, no worries. Take your time. Oh, nice view. (laughs) 
Does that lighting look weird to you? Pardon? Does the lighting, do I look weird, the lighting on me? Uh, you are, you're a bit of exposed on your, uh, on your left, yes. All good. Ooh, <laughs> Stop it, camera. I guess this will have to go. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't look bad. It doesn't look bad. I mean, there's the real uh, opposition between uh, our two. <laughs> it's like half midnight for me. Oh, I think that's a bit better. All good. It yeah. it is it is it is okay now. It is okay. I mean, it doesn't it it looks good. Yeah. yeah okay, cool. uh, I'll, I'll definitely cut that bit out of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> Countdown five. Okay, what were we talking about? I'll ask you a question. Five, four, three, two, one. What were we talking about before? I can't remember. Okay, the next question I'm going to talk about. Um, oh, we're talking about conservation efforts. I'm going to 
segue into things that we can do. How can we help? How can the everyday How we can help? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to ask that question, okay? Okay. Okay, so further to this idea of conservation, conservation action, what can the everyday person do? So me, what can I do and people like me? What, what can we do to help these, these species? Well, that's a very interesting question because that's... Sorry, no, no, let me do that again since I'm counting it out. Sure, let's do a good one. Okay. So just on the conservation action part, um, what are some things that we can do as the general public? Is something I can do? How can we help? Yes. Uh, so how can we help other people everywhere in the world? So first, firstly, that would be to, to wear awareness and to try to understand the species, to follow, I would say to follow all the pages, just like you do, just like wildlife, real wildlife organizations are doing on the field. There are a lot of pages, there are a lot of, of work that are being done that you can follow, you can support the work. You can also volunteer with them because they are always looking for volunteers. There are a lot of wildlife organizations and you don't need to have any scientific background or anything to go and do eco-volunteering or ecotourism because that's the reality of what we were saying before is that preserving wildlife, mostly the painting dog, if we're thinking of the painting dog now, is extremely cost, extremely expensive. The cost to just preserve one pack of painting dog is very expensive. By volunteering, by doing ecotourism, you are participating financially to the conservation of the species. Mm -hmm. So this is one aspect. Then a second aspect is might sound unexpected, but climate change. Because the pentic dog are more affected by all the predator than the climate change. Because as previous, previously said, they are wide-ranging forager. So they, they, they have to, to move from large, large distance every day to get the prey. And so they are more affected by all the predator in Africa with the climate change. So it's something that, you know, it's not just for the particular conservation that we should do something for climate change, but they are more affected by the climate change uh, alteration than other species, which is interesting to, uh, to talk about. And yeah, just raising awareness, trying to understand the species, just following page, just following work, just reading, and yeah, go to Africa and try to, to see them, you know, either through ecotourism, eco, either to uh, to volunteerism, for volunteerism. Okay, thanks for the tips. Um, I don't know how long you can stay on for, but there's a couple more questions. A couple more questions. Yeah, yeah. To ask, if that's cool with you. Yeah, no, I'm good, right? I'm good. So on the ecotourism part, so I'm, I'm a big believer in ecotourism and its potential. I think it has a massive potential in, in conservation when implemented in the right way. Um, Obviously, there's bad and good and bad ways to do it, but because it integrates this monetary aspect into it, which is practical in today's world, exactly. um, for that reason, I think it has big potential. Um, what are some pros and cons that, that you're aware of with um, ecotourism as it currently stands? Because I read an article recently uh, that posted in the description how um, wild animals when you're on a, a tour or, or a safari, they respond aggressively or it, it does have an impact on them and it does influence them. This ecotourism. It does have an impact. 
and and what is really important when you do ecotourism, when you just do safari or everything, or even for scientific purposes, for research, it is it is essential. They are wild animals. They they require the space. You know, you you should not interfere with the with the environment with the with the natural space, and and that is one of the problem with ecotourism sometimes and with either through good or bad ecotourism is that we go close to them. So they are used to, in some reserve, they are very used to um, to the human interaction. And this is something that is just something now for them. It's not even a problem to be surrounded by humans. There are some places where ecotourism, either through voluntaries or safari or whatever purposes you can have, are, are only focusing on the business aspect. And therefore, they could just put, for example, just having too many cars in the same places or to just have an unsustainable population within reserve or stuff like that. Um, then there are some pros. There are many pros for that is that you, you get the public to be close to wildlife and, and we are natural. We are natural beings. And and when you see the reaction when people, either in, in, in Asia or either in Africa, when you see the reaction when people see wildlife in, in real life, it's priceless because we are natural beings and we, we live in society that is trying to make us forget that. Mm-hmm. And when you see the wildlife by itself, you just remember why we love that so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so important to go yourself to see that because it, 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 it is incredible. You can watch, you know, like picture videos, wildlife documentaries. There's never been the same feeling than when you see it by yourself. And once I was like I was saying before, when you look love and understand something, you are more likely to care for these things and you are more likely to want to preserve it than when you don't really know about it, which is quite straightforward to say, but it's very important. So seeing and caring and appreciating something, a species or an ecosystem by yourself, it is the best manner, best way to preserve it on the long term. Yeah, you need that um, that emotional connection because like you said, you you protect what you, you care about, you protect what you love. Some, uh, and some, face, some uh, how do you develop that love? You, you need some tangible real world experience with that creature. And ecotourism can provide that. Um, yeah, because there's, there's nothing that beats having you know, yes. this experience in the real world. Seeing the David Attenborough Docker is cool, but nothing beats you know, doing that in the real life. So, for that reason, I think ecotourism. Along with the money side, but that experience side. Along, but there are many, many, many ecotourism that are doing remarkable jobs. Then you always have some that just focus a bit on the on on, on the financial aspect, and they are not doing what they should be doing. But mm-hmm. overall, this is quite a positive. Uh, it's quite a positive way of of preserving wildlife, and this is also one of the only way, because like I say, when we if we only talk about the Pentagon now. The money that it costs, this is something that we need to appreciate as well. Because yeah, of our mistakes, come from somewhere. it's thousands and thousands of pounds that need to be spent just for the preservation of one pack. The money you need to put on, on the monitoring team, on the, on, the, on the vehicle, on paying the team, the wildlife conservationist team, you know, it's, it's so much money. And, and this is something that is the reality of today. If you want to preserve the wild, the painting dog, you need to pay for that. And this money has to come from somewhere, you know. Where does it apparently come from? Donations, governments? Donations, volunteering, volunteering, ecotourism. Then you have a governmental uh, 
support for for some uh, for some uh, wildlife organization. So I, I'm not aware of which one has which one has not. Well, this is beyond my. But it seems to me, generally speaking, that it's it's reliant on on donations. This is something that this is something that I will try to further explore with my uh, wildlife videos with the next few months. Um, well, you know, you know, because I find that how the how does that series, work? Because yeah. to me, it's, like it's, it's, it's not a it's not a sustainable model um, for conservation because you know that you can't really rely long term on on donations to fund you know a project like it's, uh, conservation, yes. especially if more and more species, if we follow this trend, more and more species are going to need our help. Therefore, we'll need more That's funding so or donations. So we need a way where we can self-fund ourselves in eco-tourism or eco-business. Eco-preneurship is a term that I'm quite interested in. I'd love to be an eco-preneur one day. Um, but this idea that you're self-funded and you... It's more about um, yeah, doing business in an ethical way. Um, that's that's you, You're self-reliant, but also... I think it will inspire more people as well because you could, if you can create a business which is generating an income, you will also inspire business people, entrepreneurs to get involved as well because they can make money. But as a consequence, you know, you're also contributing to conservation. So the conservation aspects a byproduct of having an ethical business model. Um, of course. I don't know the ins and outs, yeah. but that's, I, I know that that's a, a possibility. I think in the future, um, yeah. But yeah, we need to we need to be practical about it, and all these efforts require money, and where do we get that money from? Like like we were saying earlier, conservation is not just about understanding animals; it's about dealing with all the all the extra aspects of conservation, dealing with politics, politics regulation, dealing with the tourists, dealing with the tourist uh, requirement, because the tourists have requirement as well. So they want that species there, they want that many species there. And if you say, oh, but maybe if there are too many elephants in this area, that might negatively impact the entire ecosystems. We might have to remove some elephants. That's something that sometimes the tourists don't want to hear. And so to please the tourists, you, you let this uh, species somewhere when Good conservation should, well, conservation initiative should go through the removal of some species somewhere. You need to, you need to, you need to find the perfect balance between appropriate wildlife conservation initiative and the desire of the tourist or the public. And that's a reality as well. That's a fascinating concept. It, 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 balance, it, and and to go back to what you were saying about you know preserving the, the panting dog and preserving all the species that are also. Sometimes when you focus on one iconic species, such as the lion, such as the elephant, such as the pentic dog, the pentic dog by itself cannot survive. The pentic dog, as any other iconic species, any you know, require healthy habitats and ecosystems in order to survive. Therefore, when you, when wildlife organizations are focusing on the pentic dog conservation, they are doing so much more than just the pentic dog. You cannot just focus on one species. Because you need you need healthy habitats, healthy ecosystems, and so when you achieve a good conservation of panting dogs, not only this benefits benefit this particular species, but it also benefits 
all living organisms that rely on these ecosystems. So sometimes it is important to just choose one iconic species, the rhino, the elephant, the iconic, the, the venting dog, and to not really discuss all the other species, but all these other species are benefiting by the preservation of the panting dog, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. you require healthy ecosystems. So this is why something, you know, it, it, it is also interesting to, to talk about that. You cannot just have one species just like that. You cannot just focus on one species. It is so much, it's, everything is interconnected that if you just want to save the, the panting dog and you just focus on it, you will not go somewhere, anywhere. Mm-hmm. You need to have all the healthy elements that the panting dog require. You need, you need a good prey density. You need enough uh, predator competition. So you need to, for example, like you're saying, in in the, the meta population in South Africa, all the pack of pentic dog has been uh, uh, has been reintroduced within predator fence reserve, where there were already lions, because mm-hmm. we want to see, stimulate the most natural environment condition. So if you put them in in an environment when there are no lions, there it's not as natural as it should be. So all the elements required to have healthy habitats for them, and this will benefit all all living organisms that we rely on this ecosystem. Just like I said, mm-hmm. that's interesting to, to, to discuss that. Yeah. So we've gone for almost an hour and a half now. So yeah, we'll probably uh, finish it off soon. But is there any topics you want to talk about in particular that we um, haven't touched on or want to touch on a bit more? Well, I think we, uh, is there something that you, I think uh, we have went through most of it, isn't it? Yeah, maybe one thing. Um, if you have more questions, I'm happy to answer it. So conservation threats specific to the painted dog. Um, what, are some, well, what are some conservation threats that you're currently aware of? So you touched on habitat loss. Threat. threat. Yes, so, yeah, that's something we, we didn't talk about. The threats are numerous. So you had, as I said, the persecution, so that we are aware of that, the habitat loss for every species, but wild dog, that's the painting dog that rely on, on larger home range that other species are even more affected by that. Then you have the genetic diversity that is reduced because of the, of the reduced habitat and because of the reduced population. Then you have the snares, so the snares is a real issue in, uh, in Africa at the moment because of the, uh, when it caught one, one uh, painting dog, there's a snare, sometimes it just get caught the whole, the whole pack, which is, which is, uh, which is tragic. Mm-hmm. And there are all the, all the surprising uh, threat, which is the road traffic accident. And so there is a real issue with road traffic accidents when people driving kill the panting dog. And this is also even a problem within national parks. So people are just running too fast that sometimes they just hit a panting dog. And this is happening more often than you would imagine. This is a real issue within national parks. Uh, mostly in Zimbabwe, right. I think in That's national a... parks. But, uh, yeah, and, and just outside the protected areas when people are just driving, this happens quite, okay, like quite often that the traffic road is done. It, yeah, it's probably not yes. something uh, many people think about or consider <laughs> That's as a threat. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then Yeah, sorry. What about uh, some solutions? So, um, one strategy 
that you touched on was the translocation and developing these meta populations. Um, and you're finding progress in that. Is there any other strategies that you're aware of um, that conservationists are It's obviously to get the local communities. Once you have the local communities that are caring for the species, then, then, it's, then it's a win because that the local communities are the future in, are in Africa. They live there. They live at five minutes from the reserve. They live at five minutes from the national park. But sometimes, like, the local communities have never had the opportunity to enter a reserve. So you have... I remember when I went to South Africa that there were some, like, kids that we went to that primary school to just, like, give presentation. And the kids there never went to a reserve. So they've never seen an elephant. They've never seen a lion by themselves. And they live at five minutes from it. And this is so important to get, and this is what the wildlife organizations are working on at the moment, everywhere in Africa, or every, everywhere in the southern Africa. So the Kaza are doing a great job with that. South Africa, they are trying to do, to do it more to get the local community involved into wildlife conservation. Because once you have the, the local community, these are people that might not become poachers. These are the young kids that might become the future conservationists. Mm -hmm. And like we said, when you understand and, and love a species, you want to care for it. But when you live at five minutes from a reserve and you've never seen a lion, when you've never seen a painting dog, it's difficult to get them on the same board as us who come from Europe and say, oh, we need to protect them. And they say, yeah, but we don't really mind of them. You know, we've never seen one. So when you get the local communities, this is a real, real benefit beneficial tool on the long term and this is this is what wildlife organization understood that you needed to work with the youth and the and the adult that might you know be hunter or poacher and you know if you convince them the, the adult poacher might be difficult but you know that's what the youth having like education with the youth is so important mm -hmm. so it's one of the long-term strategy and at the moment it's quite it's quite uh, it is quite a success at the moment yeah. Yeah. yeah, like you said, it's, a, it's obviously a holistic, uh, need to approach this, this problem or this challenge holistically and, and getting the locals on board is definitely a paramount thing, thing to do in the longevity of you know, conservation. Um, so you're, you're flying out to South Africa tomorrow? On Sunday, so for me it's still Friday, well, it, so for yes. me it's still Friday, but I'm leaving in two nights and living in two nights yes and briefly just describe your your intended trip for the next what's your plan what's your roadmap yes so i will go for the six first week with a wildlife organization called wildlife act and so wildlife act are actively highly monitoring the painting dog in the region of, of kwazulu natal mm -hmm. uh, they are working in many different reserves they are doing an amazing job. I'm very excited to, to meet all the team, to work with them. I'm going to conduct my research with them. So I'm going to use historical data that they've been collected. I will, my research will be uh, conducted with the assistance of Wildlife Act. And this will be part of my uh, university uh, honors project. So during the next six weeks, I will be an intern there. And I will conduct my research, I will use historical data, I will try to make video, wildlife videos with them, try to interview as many conservationists as possible that are actively working on the field. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to go with another uh, uh, wildlife, conservation, uh, wildlife conservation in the Limpopo uh, region in Kaongwe, which is uh, 
in the in the in the in the northeast part, very close to the Kruger National Park. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be more focusing on the really wildlife conservation aspect. So I will have to collect data. I will have to um, I will have to uh, host the the volunteers that will come with me, volunteers interns, and we're gonna go collect data in just on one reserve. So it's just one reserve that we're focusing. And every day uh, we collect data on the cheetah, on the lions, on the elephants, on all the like megafauna. And then we're just gonna, you know, just doing conservation. So for example, me, what I will try to focus in on the movement correlation between the, the wildlife. So what I really like to focus is the predator's movement. So for example, my research at Wildlife Tag will be to assess the spatial and temporal coexistence between the pentic dog and the lions within our reserve. Mm-hmm. And so this means that I will have data from, from a few years between all the painting dog localization, all the lions localization within a small reserve. Because when you reintroduce painting dog and lions in a small reserve, you need to understand how much painting dog, how much lion can can be re- can be reintroduced within a small reserve. Because obviously the, the, the area is smaller than the natural uh, intact uh, areas. So we need to understand how this affects the species, mm-hmm. how this affects the alteration between and the interference between the, these two species. So with this data, I will try to find correlation. I will try to find if when the lion, like, what is the home range? Are they overlapping? Is the are the home range overlapping between each other? And are they avoid are the painting dog avoiding the lions? And where are they going in the reserve? Where are they going in the reserve? What time of the day comparing to the lions? This kind of stuff. So I'm very looking forward to that. Yeah, very looking forward to that. I'm very excited. Yeah, well, make sure you um, yeah, are active on Instagram and I'll follow what you do. Try to. I will, I will probably have limited access to internet. Oh, uh, yeah. So, well, that's another I'll, thing. We need, my best. we need global, we totally. need global internet, totally. don't we? Like if, to, uh, if you if you had a GoPro on your head and you're if, and you could yeah. literally document your whole day, your field yeah, work, so, what you do with these animals, and live stream that to the rest of us, that would inspire me. And if it inspires me, it would life, at least inspire someone else. Life. Do you know Safari Life? Pardon? Safari Life. So it's yeah. different than conservation, and there are field guides, so it's not the same thing, you know. But it's still it's still good to to be, you know, to follow the skin of like someone that is uh, having a stream well, you, in life. I you should you should try and document, you should try and record as much of even your daily activities as as you can. Right. And then when you're back in internet reception, figure out if you can maybe um, extract some useful pieces of content from that, because even just the daily activities, like the ins and outs of the conservationists, bio, field biologists, researchers in this space, just the daily activities and the, you know, those little things that um, I think people will be really intrigued about. Yes. So and if you do as that, I said, cool. I'd love I, to see I'm it. still a student. I'm still learning. You know, I still have so much to learn. So I'm hoping doing. So I'm going to South Africa for the next four months. I'm hoping to do another Skype with you in September and October to see the evolution of what I've been doing and like, you know, how this has changed, you know, like with my modest knowledge now, if I learn, you know, more, more about the conservation, if I have more things to say, you know. Mm -hmm. I understand, lock that in. Your knowledge is uh, more than mine, but I'm hoping my knowledge is more in uh, October than it is now, so. 
<laughs> so that's yeah, it. If, if I can interview a person a week um, and learn something yeah. each week, that's so my personal goal is just to learn through, week, through speaking to people that know more about it than I do. That's a, that's a fantastic plan, though. That's a fantastic plan. Yes. So yeah, lock that in for sure. And I'm, I'm excited for you. Um, just on, it's just making me think, I want to go there and do it with you. How does someone, <laughs> what are, how does someone get involved in, in this as a volunteer? Is it a matter of reaching out to these organizations by email or is, do you, is it like a more formal yes. application? Fine online, I have plenty of, that's the thing as well. Like I'm, I'm not capable to tell you which one are the good one, which one are the bad one, you know, that's like beyond my uh, yeah, but if you're on the, on the, on, on, online, you can find plenty in each country. You can find wildlife wildlife uh, volunteering and internship programs, and and you don't need. There are some there are some wildlife organizations that will just take birding scientists or birding conservationists. But you have some which are more broad mm -hmm. to all the So it's not holiday. You know, you go there, you do you do conservation, you, you try to help as much as you can. You know, but you don't you you don't feel overwhelmed by oh like i don't you know i don't study science like can i go there there are places that are looking for for they are looking for volunteers everywhere and so you can look online there are plenty of there are plenty of life organization plenty of countries and you can find a different range of uh, of program as well you know that would suit your, your expectation and what you you want to do basically on the on the field yeah. well, maybe one day we'll be uh out yeah. there in the real world doing some conservational so. hands-on so. work together. Wouldn't that be something else? Making podcasts in South Africa. Yeah. Well, my dream life would be, um, you know, a combination of offline conservation and online conservation, uh, preserving the natural world with your hands on a daily basis and then documenting that journey, um, making that consumable in the form of content and then just sending that out into the online world. That's my ideal life. That's what I'm currently trying to work towards. But at the moment, I'm starting online because that's my only option. The path yeah, is long. The venture plan is to... Want to do, that's something you can achieve, you know. Yeah, we, this online world is powerful. And we can there's use potential it. in what you're doing. There's, there's a real potential in what you're doing. And, and I think that, like, Within the few weeks, if you keep doing that, you will have more and more opportunities to interview more important person throughout the time, you know, and to get the most, you know, kind of variety of people working or doing a mm. different things, different purposes that is still so useful. What mm. you're doing is useful. What are like artists engaging with like raising, raising awareness is as important as the scientists that are. Well, I think so because I, I view this in the from like a holistic, holistic perspective and, and every single person can contribute in some way. And I know there's a lot of artists out there who love animals, they love the exactly. environment. And uh, I'm sure if they could practice their art uh, in a way that also is beneficial for the natural world, then I'm sure they'll jump on board. And if they jump on board, then that's amazing. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's many ways that we can um, help out and all combine our skill set and effort for a common cause. So. What you have to do is to, to highlight the critical work of wildlife organizations that are working in the shadow 
And in an essence, this is what you're trying to do as well. You're trying to give to give the voice to people that maybe not have the platform, the media and the media content, you know, the, the media. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to do is these guys are, are the work that you're doing in these on the ground um, organizations, they're being the voice for the, the voiceless. But these people that are being that voice are not having that voice for the rest of the planet. So I'd like to be the voice for these people so they can get awareness and they can be put in front of everyone else and um, hopefully get some positive momentum from that. But as, 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 uh, as always, it's a pleasure, my friend. Do it, do it if you keep doing one, it. One hour and 40 minutes, so that's a PB for me. That's more than last time. That's more than last time, actually. More than last time. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking to see the ending results. Yeah, 100%. I'll, um, I'll have a look at this probably next couple of days or next week and um, go through my process, which I'm still trying to figure out of turning a podcast into content. Um, okay. So this is my macro content and I try and I'm still figuring out a system to turn that into micro content that I can then send to the world on Instagram and Facebook. And, and do you have a website or do you have a, a Facebook page? No. Um, I, no, I, I do, but um, I'm still trying to figure out. Um, um, I do have a Facebook page, but I'm not active on it at the moment because I'm still trying to figure out um, what Earth Offline means, and I'm starting to get clarity around what that is and. You know, a year ago, it was something completely different. It was it started off as purely an ecotourism thing, Earth Offline, like online hub for offline experiences, and then it transitioned more into conservation. Um, but it was more from like a it wasn't personal at all. But now I think I'm, I'm wanting to turn Earth Offline into like a personal brand. So Earth Offline is my online name. Um, so yeah. I'm, I don't know what content I'm posting on Facebook, but I, I definitely will post some yep. stuff on there soon. Um, um, yeah, it's all kind of work, learning and figuring it out as I go. But yeah, I'll, I'll send you all the stuff like, that I have. And, and, um, perfect, right? You, know, you need to do. You need to just go for it. Just like you know, we're going with Luca, and at some point, if you just procrastinate and think, "Oh, I need to be better before to do it." You will never improve that the way how you're doing what you're doing now that you will just improve and improve we what you're doing now is like yeah, like, yeah. I, I really really enjoyed your podcast with the elephant like uh, with a person i can't remember his name but the way how it was legend. <laughs> the, way, the way how it was uh, the video made and like the, the subtitles and the video that you know the the theme that will appear soon you know i really enjoy that you know yeah so there's progress lo- bar at the bottom potential a lot of good vibes so i'm very looking forward to see what you're gonna do next yeah thanks man appreciate it okay well it's been a pleasure um enjoy your time in okay. south africa hope it all goes thanks. well um you if you do stumble upon internet when you're there like feel free to hit me up with anything really like if you got any and cool news i'd love to hear it plenty dogs there for your page yeah totally so, um, 
Good. Yeah, good luck with that. And yeah, lock some lock in a podcast um, too later on in the year, September, October, whenever whenever you're back or whenever you want to do it. You can make it happen. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was great. Yeah, thanks so much. Cheers, man. All right. Have a good one. I'll chat to you later. Bye bye.